welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com, and today I'm joined by journalist Rachel Hills, author of the new book, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality, which has been described as, quote, a bracing and brave interrogation of contemporary assumptions about sex. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to The Labor of Love. Thanks so much for having me, Laurie. So, Rachel, your book is centered around the concept of the sex myth, which is this idea that sex holds the key to who we really are and that we measure the quality of our relationships by the details of what we do in the bedroom. Where do you think this myth evolved from? It's a great question. I think that it's a myth that is really deep-rooted in our society. There's a tendency to always want to talk about things that are happening in our culture as if they're new. But I think that this one goes back hundreds or if not thousands of years. So I guess the root of it is probably the biological facts of sex itself, even though it's a cultural phenomenon. So if you look historically, uh, we, we spent humans have spent most of their existence in a world without reliable contraception and a world without um, antibiotics. And this is a world in which having sex can, particularly if it's heterosexual sex, it can get you pregnant, but also all types of sex can contract diseases as well. And so this is a very kind of fraught situation for sex to be in. And you can understand why we would see it as this incredibly central thing. And then that kind of goes through to religion and then to really fast forward over 2000 years, (laughs) uh, you can see how that idea of sex as being this important defining factor of our morality and our identities translates into today's media and advertising culture. And of course, the conversations that we have with ourselves as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the contemporary myths and how those evolved. And as you said, let's talk about the media and how they've contributed to it. I think the sex myth, it's, it's kind of everywhere in our culture. It's everywhere that we talk about sex, which in turn is kind of basically everywhere from religion to government to magazines and TV and movies and, of course, websites these days as well. Although I think actually online is proving itself to be a really effective, a really effective medium at challenging the sex myth as well. But then the sex myth also exists in our conversations that we have with one another. So so on the on the kind of media level, you can see it, for example, in sitcoms where characters are dating different people every week. And in that scenario, it's implied that they're having sex with those people as well, or at least engaging in some kind of sexual activity. And if ever on a sitcom, a character goes through a period of time where they're not having sex, it's considered this kind of terrible thing that needs to be fixed. Like I remember on How I Met Your Mother, I think Ted went five months without having sex once and all the other characters were like, well, we need to do something about this. Even though amongst many single people, even single people in New York, where it is quite rainy and thundery right now, so I apologize if anyone (laughs) can hear nasty sounds in the background, but it's quite common to go months without sex or even to go years without sex. You also talk about how our own personal conversations with our friends around sex perpetuate this idea because either we're closed-mouthed about the amount of sex we're actually having and not, you know, either not telling the truth or just not offering it up. And mm. you say that that is a real problem. Yeah. So I think that Part of what allows the sex myth to thrive, and this isn't just the fact that we have 
collective falsehoods about sex. It's kind of the symbolic and emotional power that we give sex and its status as this important thing for our identities and our relationships. And part of what allows this myth or mystique around sex to thrive is the fact that there is alongside all the talk about it, there's a lot of silence when it comes to actual details. So we hear about sex, um, the word, and sex, the idea, constantly in our society, but we don't hear so much about the actual details of people's lives. We're kind of in the dark about that. So you decided to to not just talk to your friends about your sex life, but <laughs> you decided to tell everyone about it in a New York Times column where you wrote about the age (laughs) at which you lost your virginity. So I wanted to hear why you decided to do that. And also, you know, did your experience with sex influence your research and obviously your decision to write this book? It's funny because when you asked that question and you said that I decided not just to talk to my friends about it but to other people as well, I thought you were going to refer to me asking other people about their sex lives, which is definitely <laughs> was definitely more my intent when I started out on the project than revealing the age at which I first had sex in the New York Times, which, which was, was? something which was twenty six. That was definitely not something that I planned on or even thought about doing until very close before the book came out. Um, and I guess I chose to do that for a couple of reasons. And I guess, I think within feminist literature especially, there's this kind of intertwining of the personal and the political. So I think what feminist literature does so well is it takes experiences that might seem unique to us and then it puts them into a political context. And that's certainly what I tried to do with my book. The starting point was... I feel weird about the impacts of my sexual history and I feel alone in that. Then, you know, in many political and social movements, it was, oh, hang on, I'm not alone. Sure, not everybody else is a 26-year-old virgin. In fact, we are statistically a minority. (laughs) But so many other people that I interviewed or that I spoke to before I started doing the interviews felt uncomfortable about some aspect of their sexual history. And this kind of mass discomfort to me seemed to be a cultural or a political problem. So part of the revelation was fitting into that kind of personalist political thing. And I think also, secondly, it's nice to give, I think, I think it helps people to make sense of ideas if you can tie them to a personal story. So telling my story in that article, for example, is is a relatable way to bring people into a broader point. And thirdly, I remember back when I was 24 or so, Tina Fey made a joke about being a 24-year-old virgin, firstly on 30 Rock, and then she talked about it on comedy shows after that. I remember that, yes. And for me, that was such a powerful moment to see on TV. I felt this huge moment of relief. I'm like, it's not just me. Tina Fey too, and she is awesome. And I'm not quite as awesome as Tina Fey. In fact, probably a very long way from that. (laughs) But in the week since that story came out, I got so many emails from people who had also felt alone. And in hearing a similar story told in that venue, it made them feel like they were okay. The same way that Tina Fey made me feel like I was okay. Thank you, Tina, for everything, Mm -hmm. for all of us. Um, As part of your research for the book, you not only revealed your own sexual history for the New York Times, but you also spoke (laughs) to more than 200 people about their sex lives. Um, What 
What were some of the most interesting findings from all of your interviews and and what did you find to be the most surprising? Yes. Yeah, so my interviews were qualitative. So I I can't give you kind of any statistical ideas of what's normal, for example. And a lot of the arguments that I make in the book aren't just based on those interviews, but they're also based on about five years of reading on sociological literature and things like that. So that's kind of the core of my theory. And then the interviews more illustrate that. But I think the thing that I found most interesting and surprising, as I said, I was driven to write this book because I felt alone and I felt freakish. Um, (laughs) And the fact that so many other people, if they didn't necessarily feel freakish, they felt frustrated with the story being told. And there were hundreds and hundreds. There were, I think, more than a thousand people who reached out to me all up. And obviously I couldn't speak to all of them. But it said to me that there was something bigger happening or that there was a need to interject in that story. The people that you spoke to were mostly so-called millennials. Is that right? Yeah. So most of them were aged between, I think the youngest person in the book is probably 16 or 17. And the oldest person in the, who I interviewed for the book directly was probably about 32 when I interviewed them. So did you talk to anybody who was married or had children? I did speak to um, one or two people who were married or had children. One of the young women that I met in Texas was, I think, 22 at the time that I interviewed her, and she had two kids. And do you think or do you know if the sex myth applies equally to older people as well? I was wondering that when I was looking through the book is that it was amazing to me how many this this refrain that you would hear over and over of the people you interviewed no matter their gender or their age really was that the frustration they had with this very limited narrative about sex i wondered if you think that it applies too to people who are older it's definitely something i've been thinking about since i finished the book and i think i end the book i think quite optimistically anyway. And (laughs) one of the points I make as I end it is I feel like a lot of these anxieties, or at least I felt like as I wrote it, I felt like a lot of our of our collective anxieties around sex seemed to be a very 20-something thing because it's an age at which it's an age that's designated for forming identity in today's culture. At least if you're if you're middle class, that's that's kind of the story that we're told. And so I wondered if it was something that people kind of grew out of. And I felt like I had over the seven or eight year process of researching and writing the book. But as I think about it more, I think that a lot of the principles in the book do apply to older people, which is why in retrospect, I wish I'd interviewed a broader age range. I think that The thing about the sex myth is in the idea rather than the book is that it's it's kind of this regulatory force that tells us what's normal and what's not and what we're supposed to do. And so no matter what age we are, I think it's something that we feel acutely when we're not living up to what we're told we should be doing. So for me, that was something that really peaked in my early 20s, but I can see how it would equally apply to a 30 or 40 or 50 something whose sex life doesn't look like what we've been told is ideal at any given moment. Some of the things that were really surprising to me were some of the statistics that you included in the book that back up some of your interviews. One of them I just wanted to mention, because this one was probably the most surprising to me, was that you found that 
or you you cite a statistic that 80 percent of male college students think their schoolmates are having sex when it's actually just five to 10 percent on a given weekend, I think it was, right? Yes, that's right. It's per weekend. Were there any other statistics that you found kind of blew you away? The statistic that I found most surprising was uh, from a study called the National Longitudinal Survey of Adolescent Health, which studies the same age group, although a bit narrower than the one that I look at in the book. So it mostly focuses on 18 to 23-year-olds. And it's this massive quant study, so very number-based. And it asked asked people how many partners they had in a given year. And obviously, as with anything relating to sex, there's a huge variation in how many partners anybody had. But the, what, what interested me was that even though we have this story of, of people and of young people in particular having this kind of unlimited sexual opportunity, well, that's what we're told, uh, the most common number of partners in a given year was one. And the next most common number after that was actually zero. That's amazing. Yeah. Going back to kind of the age group that you studied and the the ages of the people that you spoke to the most, which were the millennials, I'm curious to know how you feel about dating apps and other ways in which people are now finding and having sex online. And, and how has that contributed to the sex myth as well? Well, I think that dating apps are to 2015 what hookup culture was to <laughs> 2007. Uh-huh. So they're kind of our, our point of concern now around young people and sex or a, a kind of a point of moral panic. When I was doing my interviews, it was most of them took place in around 2012, uh, which I believe is the year that Tinder was launched on the market, but it didn't mm-hmm. come up at all. But one of the things that I found more interesting at the time, because Tinder wasn't the topic du jour, was that nobody talked about the internet or online dating generally. And that's not to say that nobody was using it, whether to find relationships or whether to hook up. But when they were talking about their feelings, their experiences, that wasn't the thing that people most wanted to talk about. You talk to a a lot of young women who say that they consider themselves very progressive and that if they don't feel, you know, particularly sexually adventurous or free, that they almost feel like it goes against who they're supposed to be. And what do you make of that? Is that can women feel, is there pressure for progressive, maybe feminist-minded women to also portray themselves as being sexually voracious or open to anything? And why why does they why do they feel they have to be that way? I think there is to a degree, and I think that it stems from the fact that women, female sexuality is monitored and uh, discussed far more than male sexuality, uh, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. Uh, we don't have media conversations around whether young men are being empowered or whether they're being oppressed or uh, whether they're fooling themselves or whether they're using their sexuality correctly. But female sexuality is a topic of constant discussion. And one thing that I've been thinking about since I finished the book is how that kind of broader cultural monitoring feeds into women monitoring themselves. So an example I can think of there is that when I asked everybody I interviewed what they thought a good sex life looked like. And it's possible or probably likely that men would 
be less open with me on this topic than women were. But it was mm-hmm. interesting to me that, for example, women had this very clear idea of how often they should be having sex, which men did not seem to have so much. And it wasn't that they, that the women I was talking to, and this really has nothing to do with politics. It's not necessarily connected to the question about progressiveness. But the women I spoke to, they had this very clear idea that sex was meant to happen two or three times a week. And that wasn't about how often they personally desired sex. It was a sense of how often they should be having sex. Whereas I didn't interview any man who said, I should be having sex X number of times a week. Even gay men, actually. And lesbian women felt that same pressure as well. Before we end, I wanted to ask you if you think that realistically our society can step away from identifying ourselves primarily with our sex lives. And what would it take for us to begin that transition? It's a really tricky question, isn't it? Because I think (laughs) that as much as as I detail in the book, this whole symbolic and emotional importance that we invest in sex actually limits our sexual choices or our decisions. And it can make us feel bad unnecessarily about decisions that we do make. I think the reason that as a culture, we're so wedded to this idea is because it's also kind of sexy and it's also kind of fun. Like to to imagine that sex is the key to your desirability and the key to your relationship and the ultimate kind of pleasure that you can have. I feel like it's a kind of psychological pleasure enhancer as mm-hmm. well as yeah. a, as well as an anxiety provoker. So how do we extricate sex from identity? I think I guess there are a couple of steps. The the most important thing I would like to see is a demolition of sexual hierarchy. So getting rid of this idea that some ways of being sexual are more moral than others. So that you're more moral if you're married than if you're single, or you're more moral if you're heterosexual than if you're Mm -hmm. queer. But also getting rid of the idea that you are more interesting or more liberal or more vibrant if you've had sex with a greater number of partners or if you're more adventurous in the bedroom. So acknowledging that no one way of being sexual is actually better than the other on a cultural level. Or normal, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I think allowing ourselves more room for exploration and the fact that our sexual desires and the way that we choose to live our sex life changes over the life cycle according to what else is going on in our lives, what's going in our bodies and what matters to us. Rachel, thanks so much for being on The Labor of Love today. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Hills is the author of the new book, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.